0: song together and close in prayer because that's discipleship. I was looking at some of the, you know, take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. That's discipleship. Sometimes as I think through some of the lines of that hymn that we sang, I don't mean this in a terse way, but I'm going to be honest, and that is uh, A.W. Tozer. Wrote a lot of things, said a lot of things, but one of the things he said was, Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. And you know, I I sing those words, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, and yet sometimes I don't do that. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold, oh, I, I withhold plenty of mites, and on and on, but that... That song definitely is a song of discipleship, so it's food for meditation. Thank you, choir, for for singing that. That was encouraging and convicting at the same time. If you have your Bible and it's not open to 2 Timothy, you can go ahead and do that. I think I will reread the section that Doug read for us. Oh, by the way, when the one time Doug said, don't get too comfortable knowing you were going to be getting it, I can say, go ahead and get comfortable. <laughs> You'll be seated for a while. Second um, Timothy chapter two. I use the ESV, uh, the English Standard Version, so some of the wording may be a slight bit different. That's okay. Um, what version was that you read from, Doug? NIV, Ivy. Okay. Um, let me just read. I'm going to, for the sake of time, let me just read the first seven verses. Uh, really, I ought to go back to chapter one and verse thirteen. Because chapter 1 and verse 13 is, is, you know, follow the pattern of sound words you've heard from me. Verse 14 ends with, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. Sometimes chapter breaks and verse divisions get in the way and make it more difficult to understand sometimes what the authors of Scripture are saying. If that chapter break were not there, we might see this as being one big section but sometimes we see a new big number like the number two, and we think, oh, this is something new. And really, it's just a continuation. Paul mentioned at the end of chapter one, a couple men who were unfaithful and turned away. There were many who had, and he mentions two by name, and one who was faithful. And he starts chapter two, as I have in the ESV, you then, some, t- some translations have the word therefore. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, take your word and own it to our hearts. Lord, if we need encouragement, I pray that you would encourage us. If we need comfort, Lord, please be the comforter whom you promised to be. Lord, if, our, if we need confrontation or rebuke, I pray that you would Do that for us, simply to prepare us to be better servants for you. Paul says later in his passage, I endure everything for the elect's sake. Lord, may we have that same mentality, be willing to endure whatever is necessary to see the furtherance of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning, and therefore I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my and all of our hearts would be pleasing, would be right, would be acceptable before you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I will start in chapter 2 in verse 1, but as I mentioned contextually, we really should go back into chapter 1, so I may make allusions to that here and there. But you'll notice there in verse 1, my main point is going to be in verse 2. I want to take verse 2 and kind of run with that this morning, but before we get there, verse 1, I just want to point something out. Paul writes to Timothy, says, you then, my child. Now, again, Timothy, we don't know if Paul led Timothy to Christ. We know Paul mentored Timothy. We we get that in the book of Acts, where we see before Paul going out on his second missionary journey, grabs Timothy, takes him under his wing, takes him along with him. But he refers to Timothy as his child, possibly because he led him to Christ, at very least because he mentored him. One thing I do want to clarify, very often when people preach on Timothy, they refer to him as timid Timothy, or timid Timmy, uh, there are a couple of responses here, and there are a couple things Paul says about, you know don't be ashamed of me uh, and the, my chains and things. I don't know that Timothy was that timid. Now when Paul needed someone to go to Ephesus in a not so easy situation, Paul sent Timothy. When Paul needed somebody to go to Corinth in a very difficult situation, Paul sent Timothy. Paul sent Timothy in a number of cases where if Timothy were that frail and shy and timid, I don't know that Paul would have sent him. So I'm not sure we're really being fair to Timothy. Sometimes we're, sometimes we're harder on some of our Bible characters than we ought to be. I think many of us, when we get to heaven, we have an apology that we owe a guy named Thomas. Okay? I know, I know. When we think of Thomas, what's the adjective? Doubting. Okay? Technically a participle, but we won't go there. It's a, he's doubting Thomas. Right? Oh, yeah. Because, because he doubted. Listen. If you just saw, just knew of someone being crucified, you were familiar with crucifixion, and a few days later they said, oh yeah, he was here, I'm not sure I would be so quick to say, sure, why not? I might doubt as well. And by the way, let me remind you that in John chapter 11, when they were talking about maybe going to Jerusalem and being fearful of going to Jerusalem and probably dying there, who was it who said, let's go, and if we have to, I'll die, we'll die with you? That was Thomas. Thomas. So let's go a little bit easy on Thomas and stop calling him Doubting Thomas any more than you should call me Doubting Dean, which actually is probably more applicable. And I don't want to call Timothy Timid Timothy because I'm not so sure he was. Paul sent him into some situations that I don't think a timid person would have been sent by someone as wise as the Apostle Paul. So anyway, he says, So you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is interesting. Okay, Jolene will appreciate this, but... You know, we need to look at the scriptures grammatically. Paul here gives a command to Timothy, and it's, the command, it's an imperative, he says, be strengthened. Now, the reason this is interesting is, in language, when we, when we study, I should have Jillian get, no, better not. Um, when we, when we study these things called like nouns and verbs and adjectives and adverbs, when we study verbs, we talk about things like tense, voice, and mood. Does that bring back memories for anybody in this room? Yeah, makes some of you tense. You want to raise your voice, and you're in a bad mood. No, no, that's not what I mean. But we talk about tense voice and mood. But when we talk about voice in the English language, we have two. There's active and passive. Some languages have a middle voice. We don't. But there's in- there's active and passive. Active is when you're the one doing it. Now, I say all that to say this. Normally, when you give a command, it's what's called active voice because you are the one to do it. If I say to someone, "Shut that door." That's an imperative, that's a command, and I'm saying for you to shut the door. I'm telling you to be the one to do it. If I say pick that up, that's a command, but I'm telling you to be the one to do it. So normally commands are in what's called active voice. It's very difficult to issue a command in passive voice to command somebody to do something, but they're not the one that's to do it. It almost seems contradictory. But Paul here in chapter 2 and verse 1 gives a command that's in the passive voice. He commands Timothy, be strengthened. But if he commands Timothy to be strengthened, do you realize Timothy's not the one who does the strengthening? He's saying, Timothy, be strengthened. But Timothy's not the one to do it. So he's commanding Timothy to be strengthened. But let me ask you, who is the one who does the strengthening? God So listen, Paul tells Timothy, and by extension, he tells you and he tells me, we are to be strengthened, but don't be so naive as to think we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and strengthen ourselves. We are not capable of strengthening ourselves. So he's not saying, Timothy, strengthen yourself. He's saying, Timothy, be strengthened. You are to see to it that this happens, but you are not the one who does it. God is the one who must do it. And by the way, if you followed along in the reading... Whatever it is he's calling Timothy and us, by extension, to do, it is not easy. He says, be strengthened. You need to be strengthened. You need to be strong. You need to be equipped to be able to do this. And the reason you need to be strengthened, well, he gives three illustrations. Did you notice them in following verses, starting in verses 3, 5, and 6, where he says, it's like being a soldier? That's not easy. That's not, being a soldier is not just, yeah, I think I'll just show up and be a soldier, I was raised by a World War II Marine. My father went ashore in the, on Okinawa, April 1, 1945, after having gone through boot camp at Paris Island. Being a soldier is not easy, there are many requirements, many restrictions, many things you must do to be prepared to be a soldier. So when he says, be a good soldier, that's warning Timothy, there's work involved in this. And he says you're to be an athlete. Athletes do not just show up in Rio and compete as Olympians. Many of them invested the last four years, eight years, 12 years in order to be there to do that. There'll be athletes all over this country this afternoon standing in stadiums competing because they have put in a lot of work. And by the way, he says, you must compete according to the rules. So whatever it is, Timothy, you're about to do, make sure you do it God's way. There are no shortcuts in Christian ministry. We don't say, well, I think I have a better way than God. God says, preach the word. Well, I think, let's do this instead. We can't do that. We must compete according to the rules. And third, he says, the hardworking farmer. Now, I've never been a farmer, but I've known some who have been, and I, the work, the labor involved is overwhelming. So whatever Paul is calling Timothy to do here, it's something that he needs to be strengthened. And he's saying the same thing to us by extension as well. Now, I want to focus primarily on verse 2 this morning, and verse 2 is, it makes me feel at home, and the reason I say that is the organization with whom I'm on, on staff, Reaching and Teaching International Ministries, we have two different things we'll put on material that we send out. One is our verse, the verse that drives our ministry, and the other is our motto. Let me share both of them with you. The verse is 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. What well, you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. So, if you receive something from our ministry, it's very likely that on letterhead or something, you will see that verse. If you don't see that verse, you will see what is our ministry's motto. And our ministry's motto is this All of God's people going into all the world, faithfully obeying all the Great Commission. Let me say that again because it's easy to get lost there. All of God's people going into all of the world, faithfully obeying all of the Great Commission. And both of these, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, and our mission's motto have one thing in common. And what they have in common is this word, and the word is discipleship. And you say, Dean, I read 2 Timothy 2 2. I heard you say the motto thing. In fact, I think I heard it twice. And I didn't hear the word discipleship. So how is it 2 Timothy 2 2 and your motto are dealing with the subject of discipleship? Why well, don't you to think about them more closely? We can look at 2 Timothy 2 too. In fact, we're gonna come back and look at it in a few moments, but if you have a a marker or a finger or something, keep it here. And I want you to go to Matthew chapter 28 so we can see those words that we often call the Great Commission. They are found different places in scripture, these words. Matthew 28 is often thought of as the text showing the Great Commission. Some who were at youth camp a few years ago know that the Great Commission was first mentioned in Genesis chapter one. Yes, good answer. Okay, in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, I will just start for the sake of time in verse 18. These should be familiar words to you. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, therefore, since I have all authority, go and make disciples. Ooh, there's our word. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." I had the privilege of being here at this church about a year ago. We were downstairs and I was talking about our ministry and I referred to this passage called the Great Commission and we looked at it grammatically once again and I pointed out that in this passage there is only one main verb and the one main verb in English comes out as two words. It's called make disciples. In the Greek it's only one word. But the one command we are told in the Great Commission is to do that. We are commanded to make disciples. That's our command. And this command was not just given to the 12 disciples or the 11 disciples at this point in time because he says, Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. In other words, this command goes until Jesus comes back. The command is to make disciples. It was given to the original disciples, the original apostles, and it's been given to every believer ever since. We are commanded to be a part of making disciples. That's what we are to do. Now, the question becomes, how do you do that? And he explains that through three what grammatically are called participles, and I want you to see them. First, he says you are to be going, so it assumes we're going. Oh, there you go again, talking about going to other countries and going to the ends of the earth. Yes, for some people, that's exactly what it involves. For some of us, it may mean going across the street to a neighbor. For some of us, it may mean going to the grocery store and seeing someone there. For some of us, it may mean going to a gathering some evening at someone's home. We're to be going. We're not just sitting at home in our studies, letting church happen by other people. We are to be going. Going to our neighbors, going to the nations, but we are to be going. Going, therefore, make disciples the one command, and you baptize them. By the way, when do you baptize that person? When that person receives Christ. I want you to be very careful about how the Bible uses the word discipleship. We in our culture tend to use it differently. In fact, many people, many Christians today will talk about evangelism and then they'll talk about discipleship. We evangelize people and when they come to faith, that's when we disciple them. And that's the way we use terminology today. I'm not saying there's really anything wrong with that, but when when Paul, good night, when Jesus here says, "Go into all the world and make disciples," what's he talking about? He's talking about evangelism as well as teaching growth in Christ, sanctification, whatever fancy word you want to use. So what does it mean to make a disciple? Well, it means, number one, it means to evangelize. And then number two, it means to help that person grow in Christ. That's why the third participle is teaching them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded you. And by the way, notice it's not just teaching them all things I've commanded you. It's teaching them to observe all things. There's a difference there. It's not just teaching them stuff, it's teaching them to observe, to follow, to obey. So we're told how to make disciples. We go to people. We don't wait for them to come to us. We go to people, and when we go to them, we share the gospel with them so that when they come to faith, we baptize them, and then we continue to teach them. What I want to emphasize this morning during my time is simply this. Teaching. I'm going to say that word one more time for emphasis. Teaching is an essential component of discipleship. You get nothing else out of what I say this morning, and that's possible, but if you get nothing else out of what I say this morning, please get that. Teaching is an essential component of discipleship. Now, as soon as I say that, I must clarify something. You see, when I say the word teaching, in your minds, you probably picture what's going on right now or what's going on when someone stands behind something like this, right? Because we think of formal teaching. And yes, that is a part of it. That is definitely a part of it. And as we'll see in the next few minutes, it's an important part of it. But that's not all of what teaching is. We read earlier, our our scripture for meditation was from Titus chapter 2. Were you reading in there when it talked about older women should do what with the younger women? Teach them. So I guess they're supposed to have lecterns and stand there and they're supposed to teach them, right? Because that's what teaching is. No. That is one component of what teaching is, sure. But what else is teaching? How many of us in this room are parents? How many of us have ever taught our children anything? Sometimes we wonder. I know. Don't go there. (laughs) But listen, seriously. Don't laugh. Okay. (laughs) When we teach our children, do do you get out a lectern and stand behind it? They sometimes think you are, but no, right? You see, don't be so narrow as to assume teaching is only what happens in a church building on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. Teaching should be taking place when? All the time, in life, living life with other people. Teaching takes place. Do you remember back in the Old Covenant, in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses was giving instructions to the people of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one God, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. A few verses later, what does he say? Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. When does teaching take place? All the time. So we're to be teaching, but when do we teach? Church, Sunday morning. Well, yeah, that's a part of it. But when should we be teaching? We'd be teaching all the time. I was looking at Deuteronomy chapter. I haven't written in my notes, Deuteronomy 6, 7. Teach them, you know, talk when you're in your house, when you're by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, when you go to the coffee shop, when you get together for tea, when you're sitting in a car riding to the ball game, when you're getting together. In other words, teaching should be something that is on our mind to always be doing. And by the way, who should be doing this? The pastor. Well, yeah, but only? No, this is a job given to all of us. We're all to be teaching. See, teaching, when I say teaching, is an essential component of discipleship. I am not talking about only what happens in this building on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night. It's not limited to that. In the book of Hebrews, don't turn there, but in the book of Hebrews in chapter five, the author of the book, whoever it was, let's not go there this morning, But the author of that book, whoever it was, scolds the people by saying, by this time you ought to be teachers. Is he saying by this time you all ought to be pastors? You ought to be getting up on Sunday mornings and preaching? I don't think so. But he's saying by this time you've been Christians long enough that you should be able to do what? Teach other people. When? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? Maybe, but probably when. When you sit down, when you rise up, when you go for coffee, when you're walking down the street, when you're visiting with other people, we should be teaching one another. As I mentioned, Titus chapter two tells older women, they should be teaching younger women. When, when they get together, when they're, when they're having tea, when they're sewing, when they're doing different things, they're to be teaching one another. And let me just say this right here, and I hate to be blunt, but I have to be, and that is this is one of the biggest problems with Christianity in Western culture. We have made Christianity into a spectator sport. I used those words last night. I'm going to say them again this morning. We've made Christianity into a spectator sport. I realize today is Sunday, or we probably wouldn't be here, but today's Sunday, which means this afternoon, there will be people gathering in stadiums all across this country. And by the way, if you've never seen worship in our culture, all you have to do is watch a pro football game. You'll see plenty of worship. I checked the Lions play today. Have to be applicable here. Got to be appropriate. Not going to talk about my Packers. <gasps> Ooh. Sorry. We'll talk about the Lions. Uh, the Lions, I understand, are playing in Houston today. My one piece of research told me that. My second piece of research told me this. Houston's stadium holds 72,220 people. That's the seating capacity at the stadium in Houston, where the Lions will play today. Here's the point I want to make. You know what a football game is? A football game is, in that case, a little more than 72,000 people who are desperately in need of exercise, are desperately in need of exercise, watching 22 people who are desperately in need of rest. (laughs) You laugh. Correspondingly, what have I just talked about? The church in America today has become what? A lot of people desperately in need of spiritual exercise, watching a select few who desperately need what? Rest. We've become a culture of professionals. We have professionals who do this, professionals who do that, professionals who do that. I have a professional who takes care of this for me, a professional who takes, oh, when it comes to the whole spiritual thing and ministry and Christianity, yeah, we have a few professionals who do that well. That is so far into the scriptures. The scriptures are there telling us we are all to be involved in making disciples. What does that mean? It means evangelizing, and it means building people up. That's what disciple-making is, and the scriptures say, go make disciples. Not just to the pastor, not just to the teachers, not just to the leaders, but to all people who are to be going and making disciples. In fact, go with me to sec- back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I asked you to leave a-, a marker there or something. I want to look at that verse a little bit more carefully. Paul says to Timothy, What you have learned from me, in the presence of many witnesses, and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now let's be careful, we don't look at this verse too narrowly. Paul says, What you have learned from me, in other words, what I have taught you. Paul, I mentioned this in Sunday school, was very big on teaching the whole counsel of God. And evidently, Paul did that very same thing for Timothy. And he says to Timothy, look, everything that I have taught you, I want you to turn around and entrust to faithful men. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to take this and I want you to find pastors and I want you to teach this to them? No. He does not say, Timothy, entrust these things, turn these things over to pastors. He says, take this and turn it over to whom? faithful men can i ask you in this room how many of you today are faithful people i'm not saying perfectly none of us are perfectly faithful there's only one who was ever perfectly faithful let's be real here but at the end of the day if you were saying well yeah i strive to be a faithful person then you are the kind of person timothy wants being taught and he wants you to be taught so well that you can do what what does the rest of the verse say Teach faithful men who will be able to do what? Teach others also. Allow me to paraphrase. Timothy, just as I've discipled you, I want you to disciple faithful people, not like chapter 1, verse 15, not like Phygellus not like Hermogenes, not like those people who have turned and left, not those unfaithful people. I want you to disciple faithful people who in turn can turn around and disciple others. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. The authority of that verse, I don't believe I'm going too far and I'm out of line in saying this, Pastor Luke. Disciple faithful people at this church. And your ministry of discipling faithful people in this church is so that they can then turn around and disciple other people so that you're not the one doing all the work, but everyone in this church is doing the work of the ministry. Do you see what Paul's telling Timothy? Teach so that they can teach, so that they can teach, so that they can teach. We, we get very angry with the Roman Catholic Church because of what they teach regarding what is called apostolic succession, saying that the apostles, that, that the, modern, the Pope is just a continued succession from the apostles. I think that is error and I think it is wrong, but there is a true apostolic succession and it has to do with what the apostles taught. The apostles taught and people were to take that teaching and teach others who would take that teaching and teach others who would take that teaching. And by the way, it's been going on for, I would say some 2000 years. And that teaching has now come to us. And what is our responsibility to do with this teaching? Soak it in, enjoy it and go home and watch football. No, our responsibility is to take in this teaching and then do what with it? teach right. Really, is that really what the church is to be doing? again I want to look at another passage and I apologize for flipping all around but I think it's important that we do see this go with me please to Ephesians chapter 4 question often comes up what is the purpose of the church what is the church to be doing what are we doing when we get together on a Sunday is this just like you know Rotary Club meets on Wednesdays and we meet on Sundays is that what's going on or is there something more In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, he's talking about different gifts. And here he was talking about leadership gifts, unlike the 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 passages, which deal with spiritual gifts a little differently. In Ephesians 4, he's dealing specifically with leadership gifts, teaching gifts. And in verse 11, he talks about how Christ gave some as apostles. They had their purpose. Notice I said past tense. He gave some as prophets, some as evangelists, and then some are. Shepherds and teachers, that's one role. Grammatically, there's no definite article in front of both of them, only in front of the first one, so that's one role. There are four mentioned, there are apostles, there are prophets, there are evangelists, and there are pastor teachers or shepherd teachers. Why? Why did God give all of them? Well, we just keep reading. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's an amazing statement. The church is to be a picture of the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. One of the greatest apologetics for the gospel today should be the unity of the corporate church. People should look at a church and say, Wow, something supernatural is going on in that place. There are people from different interests, different backgrounds, different ages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and look how they all get together. Look how they all love each other. Look how they all serve each other. The church is to be the greatest apologetic for the gospel that we have on this planet, and he's telling us how. Verse 14, we're no longer children tossed for, to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the way, why not? Because we've been built up, we've been equipped, so we're not tossed around. This week I believe this, next week I believe that, for another week I believe something different. Human cunning, scrafty, or uh, deceitful schemes. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. That is one of the most, we talk about judge not lest you be judged being the most taken out of context expression in the Bible. This runs a close second. I wanna come back to it in a minute. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with, uh, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, Dean, you just read that. What's your point? My point is this. God has gifted people to perform special tasks. He had gifted a group of men called apostles, he had gifted prophets, he has gifted evangelists, and he has gifted people to serve in the role of the shepherd teacher, the pastor teacher. But now the question is, why? Why has he given these gifts? Again, look with me at verse 12. He gave pastors and teachers, he gave evangelists, why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who is to do the work of the ministry? I mean, i said it again. Who is to do the work of the ministry? The pastor. Well, yeah, but only? No. Everyone is to be doing the work of the ministry. Do you see? Why do we come to church on Sunday? We come for two purposes. One, we come to corporately worship our God for who he is and what he's done. Number two, we come to be equipped. We come to be equipped so that this week we are equipped to go out and serve our God. Do you listen to messages that way? Do you listen to Sunday school lessons that way? Do you listen to sermons that way? Okay, I'm getting equipped right now so that this week, when I'm out there, there's something God is giving me today that I'm going to be able to use this week in either evangelizing or working with other believers and to be involved somehow in discipling. That's why we come on a Sunday. It's not a show. We come to corporately gather together and worship our God and we come to be equipped, verse 12, to do the work of the ministry. Let me ask you this. If someone walked in this door right now and asked any one of you, who's the minister here? What would be the biblical answer? Everyone. We are all ministers here. We're not all the pastors. No, no, no. He is gifted some specifically for the role of pastor teacher. Absolutely. We're not all the pastors. But who's the minister here? Answer, we're all ministers here. See, we come here on a Sunday to be equipped by one whom God has specifically called and gifted. We come here on a Sunday and through God's mercy and his grace and through his word and through his spirit, he equips us and he equips us to be able to go out and do the work of the ministry. Do you see what Paul's saying? So let me ask again, who is to be doing discipleship? All of us. We are all to be involved in discipleship. I love how Paul uses the word we in this passage. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. He's talking about all Christians. He's not just talking about the leaders. not just talking about the pastors. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. He's not just talking about the pastors. He's talking about all Christians. But look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to... So who is to be speaking the truth in love? The we, who's the we? All Christians. Wait a minute, are you standing up there this morning telling me that I have the responsibility to be speaking the truth in love to other people? That's not just what the pastor does? That's not just the Sunday school teacher? The answer is, no, it's not what I'm telling you, it's what Paul's telling you. I'm just a go-between. Actually, and if Paul says it, it's actually not Paul who's saying it, it's who? God. So God is saying to us this morning that we have a role in this church, and it's not spectating, We have a role in this church. When we come to church on Sunday, I want a notebook in one hand, I want a pen in the other, and I want to take some notes because what I'm hearing is equipping me to be able to go out and do the work of the ministry. One of the biggest problems is we think, well, I'm not equipped to do the ministry. And my response is, listen, I know this church. You attend a church where the Bible is taught, you're being equipped. You're being equipped every Sunday, you're being equipped whenever you get together, you're being equipped to be able to fulfill the work of the ministry. So all of us have the responsibility to be speaking the truth. To whom? To unbelievers? Yes. To believers? Yes. We speak the truth to unbelievers in hope of evangelizing that God, through the wind of his spirit, as he talks about in John chapter 3, brings faith to people and they come to Christ. We speak the truth in love to believers so that they are built up in the faith. Who is to be speaking the truth in love? And the answer is we all are. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is speaking the truth in love because of the importance of teaching, but it's not just a few paid professionals who do the teaching. It's all of us who are to be teaching one another, teaching unbelievers so that God may bring them the faith, teaching believers so that they would be growing in grace. Does that make sense? It's what the Bible's saying. We often use the word believer. Sometimes we use the word Christian. Do you realize from the scriptures there are other things we can use? We can use the word worshiper. John chapter four says he's seeking worshipers. So you want another synonym for the word Christian? The word worshiper would work as a synonym. Another word that would work as a synonym is the word disciple. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, then you are a disciple. So the questions I would ask you are twofold. Number one, Who is discipling you further? And number two, whom are you discipling? Disciples, disciple. Disciples, disciple. So if you're a disciple, the questions are, number one, who is discipling you? And number two, whom are you discipling? We are to be going. We are to be making disciples of all peoples. We come to church on a Sunday. We get equipped to go out and do the work of the ministry. And by the way, let me just wrap this up because I realize my time is fleeting. Disciples are made into the image of Jesus Christ. And therefore, what is discipleship? Let me just summarize. Let me close my notes, close my Bible, and let me just summarize this whole thing. Discipleship is the process of taking unregenerate sinners and having them be transformed into Responsibility, Yes, it's a responsibility, but not the responsibility. Do you realize the privilege God is giving to you, to me, to be involved in this? In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, I talk about the importance of teaching. Teaching is extremely important because it's through the mind. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? the Word of God. In other words, the importance, again, of teaching, teaching the Scriptures. We'll talk more about that tonight when we talk about some practical hands-on how-to with some of this. But at the end of the day, we are involved in God's work inside of people, taking them from unregenerate, hating God, sinful people, and converting them more into the image of Christ. That's what we have the privilege of doing. That's what discipleship is. Don't make it into something that it's that it isn't. How do I help somebody else become more like Jesus? And I don't want to be negative. Sadly, so many Christians in our culture miss that. They could be discipling. They could be helping. Is transforming people into Christ-like people. Because all Christians, listen, all Christians are predestined, are they not? Oh, here we go, talk about predestination. Let's not argue about it. Romans 8.29. Those whom we foreknew he predestined. But here's the question: what have they what is he predestined? He's predestined that you would be conformed to the image of his son. So, what's discipleship? Discipleship is helping people be more conformed to the image of His son. So my question, when I leave this place today, how do I get discipled better? How do I grow more into the image of Christ? My second question, how can I help somebody else? Maybe an unbeliever, and it's going to be awkward, and I understand that, but maybe someone who doesn't Or maybe another believer. How do I help that person become more like Jesus? It's not a response. It is a responsibility. It's not a responsibility. It's a privilege. And I can think of no greater privilege that God has given us than to be involved in helping people become more like Jesus. We need to be discipled, and we need to be discipling other people. What a privilege. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, it is a privilege, first, just to know Jesus. But Lord, the reason we know Jesus is because someone discipled us. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a grandparent, maybe it was a neighbor, a pastor, who knows, but somebody somewhere in your providence discipled us. And now you give us the privilege of doing the same thing with others, whether it be by just telling our story, somehow sharing the gospel with other people in our neighborhoods, in our little gatherings, at work, at the grocery store. Or Lord, we people who have already come to faith in Jesus. We have the privilege of helping them become more like Jesus. And they can help us do the same thing. Lord, it's an amazing thing that you have Turn this over to us. We are jars of clay. We are earthen vessels. But this message, this teaching is a treasure. And you have entrusted it to us. But help us not to keep it. Just as you told Timothy, Paul gave it to him so that he could give it to others, so that they could give it to others. And this has continued to the point to where it's come to us. The question is, will we be faithful And will we continue passing it on and giving it to others? Or will we be unfaithful and even disobedient and keep it to ourselves? Lord, I pray that you would just help us to see the joy that comes from being involved in your kingdom work in helping people being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. What an amazing privilege you've granted to us. But Lord, as we started, we need to be strengthened to be able to do this. But that strengthening That equipping ultimately comes from you. So I close by simply asking, Father, that you would strengthen us, give us wisdom, give us knowledge, give us discernment, but give us opportunities to help other people become more like Jesus. We ask this for his namesake.